Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, August 17th, we are studying Lamentations chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. As the second poem in the book of Lamentations begins, the prophet and the people mourn over the anger that the Lord is pouring out upon them because of their rebellion against him. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us returning guest, the Reverend Dr. Tim Seleska. Dr. Seleska serves as professor of exegetical theology and dean of ministerial formation at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Seleska, welcome back to Sharp Ryan. Thank you very much, Tim. It's great to hear you again and to be here with you again. Certainly. Glad to, glad to have you with us today talking about the Book of Lamentations. You helped us with the prophet Jeremiah last time, and, and today we're right after Jeremiah. The Lamentations happens right in the, the aftermath of the fall of Jerusalem. A lot of the material that Jeremiah deals with, that's important for, for what we're going to talk about today. In terms of context, you know, Lamentations being Hebrew poetry, the conversation concerning context isn't quite the same as in a narrative, but there are some helpful things that can be said, I think, in terms of you know, well, what is the historical context of the book and the structure of the book, things like that. What, what kind of introductory material do we need as we prepare to look at part of Lamentations 2 today? Uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, it looks like it's the events around 587 B.C. when Jerusalem fell to Babylon. Um, remember, Jeremiah was a prophet, prophet through those times. Um, the authorship of the book, I mean, he's never mentioned in the book or the name of the author, so you can't be absolutely certain, but ancient Jewish, Jewish tradition and also the church fathers held it to be Jeremiah as well. Um, and um, I do think, uh, having read through Jeremiah, reading through Jeremiah actually too as well, um, you see a lot of um, the postures in Jeremiah that you do in Lamentations as far as his grief uh, for his people and his agony over what's happening, um, those kinds of things. So it makes sense that way. Um, I mean, theologically, we can talk more about this in the Bible study, the importance of the fall of Jerusalem. And specifically, you'll see throughout the book of Lamentations, the temple is the focus. And so... Um, we can kind of talk more about that as we go through our text, which I believe is the beginning of chapter 2. As far as the structure of the book is concerned, um, it's five chapters, and each chapter is kind of a self-contained poem. In other words, they don't depend on each other, but they, of course, interweave similar themes and the mood in them is very similar as well. And the interesting thing is that, um, except for chapter 5, they are uh, what we would call in Hebrew poetry an acrostic. And I don't know if you guys have talked about that yet, Tim, or you'd like me to explain that. 
A little bit, but I think it's helpful just to, to remind our listeners, because Hebrew poetry often works differently than English poetry, what some of those yeah. features are. So I think it's helpful to go over again. All right. So you can't see it in English, and you can, but you can see it in the Hebrew text. Um, but you, what you can see in English, for example, is that chapter 1 has 22 verses. And there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And so that's deliberate. And so when you go through chapter 1, you will see, I think in Hebrew or in English, uh, it's more or less clear. But in Hebrew, you can clearly see that each verse is made up of three lines. All right? So you, if your English ver uh, text is not arranged that way, um, it's going to be hard to catch. But uh, mine is. Uh, the ESV indents what would be um, part of the first line, so you can kind of trace it there. So each verse has three lines, and so in chapter 1, the uh, first verse starts with, the first line starts with what would be the letter A in our alphabet, okay? Verse 2, the first line starts with what would be letter B, and it goes on through the, the uh, alphabet. So there's sort of a pattern that's developing in chapter one. When you get to chapter two, you see the same thing. All right, so it's 22 verses, and each verse is three lines, and the first line of each verse starts through the sequence from what we would say A to Z. Um, in Hebrew, it's um, Aleph through Tet, uh, the Hebrew alphabet, okay? Um, when you get to chapter 3, notice uh, the pattern changes a little bit, all right? In chapter 3, we have 66 verses. And so here's where it becomes clear in the Hebrew text, even the first two chapters, unless you're kind of looking, you may miss the acrostic feature. I mean, it's hard to miss, but you might. But in chapter 3, it's interesting because now you have, um, like, for example, each line, each verse. So if you look at chapter 3, verse 1, for example, verse 1, 2, and 3, they all start with the letter A. Then verses 4, 5, and 6, the letter B. Uh, then 7, 8, 9, the same letter. So you see the pattern of the acrostic kind of intensifies, so to speak, because now you have three lines, and each of those three lines starts with, uh, a letter of the alphabet in sequence, okay? Then when you go to chapter 4, um, just notice once again, you are back to the 22 verse and the similar pattern that you had in chapter uh, chapters 1 and 2. And then when you get to chapter 5, um, you don't have the acrostic at all. So you have 22 verses still, but beginning with each line, uh, each line with another letter, uh, is not in play anymore. And so you have that ending that's different, okay? So I don't know if that makes sense to everybody, but it's a very kind of interesting and noticeable pattern for each of the each of the poems, all right? I'll stop there, Tim, and see if you want to comment or ask me any questions. Well, one, one thing I think that the, that acrostic pattern does in terms of the book, particularly with the way chapter three is structured, and we'll talk more about this when we get to chapter three, but it does highlight chapter three as a, a center for the book, and not only in terms of its structure, but even theologically, as we'll see, the 
the most popularly known verses among Christians yep. from the book of Lamentations, maybe the only <laughs> known verses in Lamentations among Christians <laughs> yeah. today are in Lamentations yeah. 3, as we will see. Right. So I think it, that structure certainly serves to, to highlight that center theologically and structurally. In terms of the choice of the acrostic poem as the main organizing feature, is there any theological significance to that structure, or is that just the, the choice that Jeremiah, the author, made? Uh, that's a good question, and people have wondered about the function of acrostics. Um, so if you think about it one way, it doesn't make sense, right? Because when you think about the um, emotion of grief, when people are grieving, they don't talk in a nice stylized way, so to speak, right? Their grief is kind of all over the place. Uh, you tend to repeat yourself self a lot. You tend to talk in circles. You tend not to make sense. Anything but a kind of a structured acrostic, which requires a lot of thought and planning, right? So in one sense, you have that paradox. But in another sense, this is kind of what I think, and this is, again, just my opinion. What I think that it does is, um, how should I put this? It allows you to express grief in a, for lack of a better word, uh, in an ordered way. So it is this um, feature that that shows grief not out of control, but in control, so to speak, if that makes any sense. We do have acrostics in the book of Psalms as well. And so uh, I think that the acrostic can serve a similar function if you think about what we do in, as part of uh, as pastoral care when we're dealing with people who have um, lost someone who are in deep grief. Um, it's then the familiar parts of the liturgy and their prayers or their favorite hymns that become important to them so that it offers an outlet for their grief, but takes it on a certain path, takes it on a certain journey. You see, does that make, I think maybe that makes more sense. So there's a structure within which you grieve and it's very meaningful for people, right? When you're at the graveside to have um, this kind of a liturgical form that you go through that, that channels everybody's grief and gives everybody a voice so that at the gravesite we don't just have people, um, you know, we don't have chaos there, which is what you would expect from grief, right? Um, so, you know, right after a disaster, let's say, when you see what's happening to people, there's just chaos everywhere, so you have chaos inside of you as someone who has just undergone something terrible, and we have to allow for that. But then this other way helps grief to be expressed in a more, quotes, controlled way that maybe delves deeper into the healing aspects of it as well. Um, I've said a lot there, but again, that's just my opinion of why you would have the emotion of grief in a structured thing like the acrostic. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think it, I mean, I, I can see how that would work in the book of Lamentations because 
even with the ordered acrostic nature of say the first two poems, there is still a lot of that chaotic feel at times. You know, it, I mean, in Hebrew poetry, we'll sometimes do that where it'll kind of go back and forth and, and dig yeah. into one theme and then switch to another and then come back. Yeah. And so, I mean, it does have that chaotic feel, which would fit with the, the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. And yet all along it is, it does have that order, which yeah. is driving you toward you know, where the grief will, will find healing, which is that yeah. central part of the, the yeah. book, you know, I mean, and the, the well-known verse is rightly so that the Lord's mercies are never ending and new every morning. And that, that his faithfulness is, is great. I mean, that's, that's the center of the book. And, and that's where all of this, you know, the chaos of the grief, ultimately that's where Lamentations wants us to, to go to find the center is that even as we grieve, we do so in the hope that is there in in the Lord, and so yeah, I, I think that that's a, a fantastic way of, of understanding the the purpose of the acrostic here. Yeah, it, it is interesting when you say that because uh, uh, undoubtedly that one section in chapter three, you it, it stands out from the rest of the book, right? Um, and then so you you have this motion in which okay you reach this this is kind of the sure ground that we're left with, we're waiting for the Lord to deliver on his salvation. And um, then it takes you back into the grief, you know, and, uh, so, and that's not uncommon in Hebrew poetry in general. And so a lot of people have said that chapter five is not an acrostic because it, it kind of takes you and it actually kind of leaves you in that quote, sense of loss and brokenness, and I, I don't want to use the word chaos at this point necessarily. But what I think it does, again, if you think of the function of it, that um, it reminds us of the now, not yet. In other words, yeah. just because we have faith in the gospel and know that the Lord is going to raise our loved ones from the dead, so to speak, uh, that he's going to take care of us, doesn't mean that our grief comes to an end, Right. Um, it takes us somewhere and puts us in a different place, but uh, it becomes a platitude when we think, okay, now I've given you the gospel, now why are you so sad or why are you grieving? Um, um, that's a very inauthentic way to do pastoral ministry, as you well know. Um, but rather, um, it brings you to that high point. I guess you could look at it like this. And then when you come to the point of, you know, chapter five is not necessarily a comforting read. You would think um, that it would end with something like that. But what it does is help you so that you're not in the same place in your grief as you were before. But it still acknowledges that there's a lot of grief, a lot of distress, a lot of suffering for God's people in exile, even as we wait in hope um, so that he's given them the promise and now in our lives, we have to live by virtue of the promise, even in the midst of darkness. And so that does put us in a different place. And, you know, as Peter says, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Uh, so our grief takes on a different character, so to speak. Yeah, I think we'll see that when we get to chapter 5, that, that even as there is that sense of grief there, and not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but just that the fact that the, the way chapter five starts, remember, O Lord, and it's yeah. there's there's prayers obviously throughout the book of Lamentations, but chapter five as a whole almost functions as one big prayer, which I think is a really important feature of it that that shows you that the grief that we see, for example, in chapter one, and we're going to see in our text for today and two, it has been 
it has been now transformed by what's mm-hmm. there in chapter three, so that now the people are very directly calling out to the Lord in that yeah. grief and, and throwing it on him. So, I mean, I think there is that. And the fact that it's not an acrostic, I mean, yeah, I'm not sure. We can maybe talk more about that when we get to chapter five with, with that show. But I mean, that's there is a movement, I think, in that sense. And as you said, it's maybe not the movement we would expect. We kind of want that, quote, happy ending. Right. But but that's not always the way the grief works in our lives. And so we've got that center, that high point in the middle that does then transform the grief and, and what flows out you know, in the aftermath. And I mm-hmm. think chapter five is going to be a, a good example of that. Yeah, in, in terms of what we've got here in chapter two, the, the first 10 verses, Dr. Seleska, uh, we'll, we'll read the text in a moment. But are there any particular themes that we should be paying attention to, paying attention to in this particular section? Well, actually, the the reason I wanted to do it is because uh, how he talks, how he talks about God and um, holds God accountable. Okay. So those that right. kind of the short version of it and how God, how he see how he interprets the fall of Jerusalem theologically in terms of who God is, what he has done. See, so he gives a theological significance to the events of the fall of Jerusalem. And I guess maybe I should explain that before you read it. Um, When you look at human life from our own uh, time and place, something like Jerusalem falling happens. And we see that there is a social significance to that and a military significance to that an economic significance to that. Um, huge significance as far as um, uh, economics, as far as, you know, you lose your land, you lose your family physically. All those things are how we usually interpret the significance of historical events. So uh, all you have to do is look at how people are interpreting the significance of this continuing pandemic around us, right? And, okay, what's the significance of it economically? What's it socially? What's it health-wise? Um, you know, all of those kinds of things. But as Christians, we understand that God is in control of everything. And the uh, prophet Jeremiah knows this. He says it again and again. He knows it in his book. Um, and you see it in the book of Lamentations. So in addition to all those other perspectives, there's a theological perspective. There's a significance to uh, what has happened to Jerusalem theologically. And that's what it means to interpret reality theologically and um, we usually do that in terms of law gospel uh, or especially in the Old Testament judgment salvation and so you're seeing that this the fall of Jerusalem tells Jeremiah something about um, what's happened to his relation uh, Israel's relationship with God Um, so he's interpreting it that way and I think uh, the reason I chose this is because we usually miss that kind of accent in the way that we talk about world events and the way that we talk about uh, the interpretation of our own reality from a theological perspective. See, we we fail to do that so often, and uh, it can lead to problems, uh, big problems, I, I suppose, and, you know, especially how we live as Christians. <laughs> And who we think is really in charge and where do we put our trust? I mean, those are some really big questions. Does that yeah, make sense? So, 
It does. It does. So we're going to be seeing the the theological interpretation of the fall of Jerusalem here. How the how Jeremiah sees the Lord active and see what is what has the Lord been doing. That's I think going to be a big feature of these ten verses. So let's let's read. We're in Lamentations two verses one to ten this morning. How the Lord in His anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the, all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe. And he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes, in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid its ruins, its he has laid in ruins its strongholds. And he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. The Lord de determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. That's Lamentations 2, verses 1 to 10, our text for the morning. So, Dr. Seleska, we've just, just a couple of minutes here before our break. Just thinking about the text as a whole, one of the things that stands out to me is that throughout these 10 verses— and I, I was not scientific, I didn't count this, but almost every verb that is there, the Lord is the subject. The, the Lord is the one doing all these actions to Jerusalem, to his people. And so, I mean, in terms of theological significance, that's one thing that really stands out to me is that what has happened to Jerusalem, the Lord has done that. And I mean, and he's done that in anger, in wrath. This is, yep. well, you know, this isn't the normal picture, I think, when we think of who is God, what does he do? Yep. This picture is maybe not the first one that comes to our minds today, but it's certainly at the forefront of Jeremiah's mind in, in this section. No, I think that you're calling attention to exactly the kind of thing we need to think about and really reflect on, um, because you're right, God's the doer here. And we kind of like to soften that threat. We do not like to think about the fact that God is the one who gives, who, who uh, sends both good and evil, right? He's the one who kills and raises to life. So life and death, uh, good and evil, is in his control. And neither the prophets nor the book of Job soft-coat that. We like to say, 
we like to think of God's omnipotence in more passive terms. Oh, he sits back and he allows these things to happen. And if it's his will to intervene, then he does. But from Luther's theology, he makes the point that God isn't passive. He is active. He is the um, most active God in everything. Um, uh, he has total control. There is nothing outside of God. And so the prophet here reminds us uh, to address our, co to uh, 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 issue our comments to the right address, so to speak. And that address is God. And so he, notice that there's no hedging from Jeremiah. There's no trying to get God off the hook. There is no defense of God. That's not the purpose at all. And we do ourselves a disservice when we forget that and um, try to do just that very thing. Yeah, no, they're certainly not going to let God off the hook. We're going to see precisely what God has done to Jerusalem, to his own people here in this text, and we'll pick up more of that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron this morning on KFUO. We're talking the first part of Lamentations 2 with Dr. Tim Seleska, and we will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that your individual retirement account may make the best gift to KFUO? The IRS now allows individuals 70 and a half or older to transfer their required minimum distribution directly to charity and avoid paying the associated income tax. These gifts can provide regular long-term resources to KFUO. If you have questions about making an IRA gift to KFUO, call me, Mary, at 314-996-1518. We'll send a representative out to help answer your questions and help you establish a legacy of giving to your favorite radio station, Worldwide KFUO. You hear our voices every day as we speak the gospel, share the latest news, or for insightful and sometimes entertaining talk. Why not share your voice with us and send us your feedback, suggestions, and questions? Leave your comment at 314-996-1542. Be sure to follow us on social media, too, so you can like, comment, and share your favorite posts. Drop an email to KFUO at KFUO.org or send a snail mail letter to Worldwide KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, August 17th. We're studying Lamentations chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 with Dr. Tim Seleska, professor of exegetical theology and dean of ministerial formation at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Zaleska, with that title, you know, the Dean of Ministerial Formation, what, what, is that, what does that entail to be the Dean of Ministerial Formation at the seminary in St. Louis? Well, I uh, kind of oversee all of our formation programs, which means that our um, on-campus MDiv and Deaconess programs, and then our distance programs, CHS and EIIT and our online Deaconess Studies and SMP um, all of those programs have directors, and so my job uh, is to oversee that, which really means I stay out of the director's way and um, let them do their thing and support them when uh, it needs be. We have tremendous directors of all of those programs, and they do such an incredible job that they make my job very easy. But we also, um, I mean, as part of MFSCC, just to dig a little deeper, um, with, uh, you know, when there are uh, student issues with grades or when there's personal issues or family issues, 
um, issues on vicarage or issues in their field work, um, I'm the one that kind of helps along with that. I have a team of other colleagues who help uh, negotiate those things. Help. We, we do all that we can to, to um, address the issues in a, in a way that helps the students and helps them be successful in ministry. That's really our passion and our goal. Um, and I don't know, we always kind of look, look ahead to kind of helping students and proceeding constructively through their four years here. So, yeah, it's a great, it's very interesting. It's, it's actually a very interesting position. A lot of fun. Wonderful. God, God be praised for that, for that, that ministerial formation that happens at the seminary. And certainly that formation for pastors, for, for any Christian, happens in the Word of God, the Word of God that we're looking at today in, in Lamentations chapter 2. And Dr. Seleska, we were talking at large you know, about the, the actions of God that we see here in these 10 verses that we've got today. And, and maybe we can reflect more on that as a whole toward the end of our, our program. Let's let's think about some of the images that Jeremiah uses here and, and some of the, I mean, because I think, you know, in Hebrew poetry, imagery is, is very important. And, and so, again, the, the picture of God that we see here is is not the, well, I mean, in our in our congregation here at Grace Smithville, we've got a, a nice window toward the back that's, the Lord is my shepherd, he's carrying the lambs in his arms. That's not the picture that's here. The, the picture right. of the Lord, the word anger shows up several times. His mm-hmm. wrath, uh, the image of bringing down is is there several times. The Lord swallowing. What's, I mean, tell, help us to see the picture of the Lord that Jeremiah is giving us and pick out any particular images that really stand out to you. Okay. So if we just kind of go briefly through the first couple of verses, there's a couple of things worth pointing out, you know, I mean, no, first of all, um, he is clouded over in his anger. So right away, right at the beginning, you get this, this image of, I mean, even in our way of talking, right, when someone's angry, a cloud, we, we talk in terms of, you know, uh, there's a cloud um, enveloping him, or I mean, we, we kind of are familiar with that image. Um, if you remember, uh, clouds kind of weigh strong as a theme in the scriptures. Uh, it was the highlight of Sinai, for example, when God came down to give his people his law. It was terrifying. Um, and so you have that simple image connecting with uh, a background in scripture, right? And remember, the whole idea is that the children of Israel kept violating um God's will for their lives. They kept worshiping false gods. Um, they were not faithful to the Lord. And so I think even that that wording hooks you back up into that, that larger narrative of, of the Exodus and Sinai and um, the Torah, the law, which they continue to violate. And then notice that throughout this section, he uses that metaphor, daughter Zion. I, Rather than translate daughter of Zion, which most translations do, and that's what it is syntactically, I think that he's using daughter as this relational term. So, for example, the, I just looked up the Jewish Publication Society translates it as fair Zion. So you could translate it as daughter Zion or fair Zion, but see, it's a relationship term. And it reminds the people of what God's special relationship was 
uh, with his people in general, but specifically Zion, where he dwelled with his people. All right. So it makes what he's saying just that much more filled with pathos that here you have this uh, Zion pictured as a beautiful daughter. And um, he's angry with her to the extent that he destroyed her. And like you said, there's several, I mean, the Hebrew poet draws out every possible word he can for anger. So he uses a lot of synonyms and combinations just in these first few verses here to uh, make it clear uh, that that's kind of the the theme of uh, this section. Um, When it says he threw from heaven to earth the the glory of Israel, that second line. All right, that harkens back. If you look at texts in Isaiah, there's several texts that talk about the the fall of Babylon and the fall of God's enemies as uh, the star being thrown down to earth. And when you think of the eschaton, you think of the undoing of creation like that. So there's another image uh, that reflects the larger theme that God has turned against his people. He's treating his daughter Zion like the enemy, okay? And um, even in verse 4, I think it comes out, he sa- it says he, he steps on his bow like an enemy. Um, and so that's how Jeremiah once is picturing God. Here's the theological implications of the fall of Jerusalem. He's treating us like Babylon. Um, he has... Uh, his anger uh, in judgment is being poured out to that extent, and that becomes riveting. And then, you know, it uses the uh, words of, of you forgot, okay? So right in that third line, um, uh, the footstool of his feet, you see, um, he has not remembered the footstool of his feet in the day of his anger. Footstool of feet is another image that can refer, I mean, it's used in other parts of Scripture to refer to the ark um, or the temple or even the kingdom. But uh, I, I think it's probably the ark because the ark is pictured as both the footstool of God and the throne of God. It's where God dwelled with his people. And to say um, uh, you did not remember it um, is kind of a <laughs> devastating. So they've become, in other words, estranged or strangers, so to speak. Um, then when you go to the second verse, sometimes, yeah, so I think some of the translations do get this. That word to swallow comes up several times. So God swallowed without sparing. So you get this image of him swallowing up his people. Um, and again, notice um, in verse 2, how he continues that theme of anger. You destroyed in his overwhelming wrath um, the um, fortifications of daughter Judah. Uh, he brought to the ground, he chileled, he um, polluted. So there's the word, you know, you, that occurs in Leviticus a lot, to make something unclean. Um, kingdom and its rulers, all right? And then he goes on from there. So just in those two verses... I think that the language is deliberately used to reflect other parts of Scripture, other parts of the larger narrative, as kind of this mere image of um, what is happening. And, and, and when you see that, it strikes kind of this deeper note of the, 
tragedy doesn't even seem the adequate word. There's really no one word to express what has happened to Jerusalem. Hence, this poetry helps him to express what there are no words to express. Yeah, I think that that's a, a great way of putting it. That, I mean, because it, it is, in many ways, the destruction of Jerusalem. And I think this is hard for us to appreciate in our context today. But this was, I mean, this was just a a heart-wrenching and really earth-shattering event for the people. And the the use of poetry, I really, I do think, helps the, the prophet, the people to express that just utter anguish, the the tragedy, the catastrophe that they had experienced by putting it into poetry. And here, as we've been saying, they're putting it completely on the Lord. They're not letting him off the hook. And as we're going to see, I don't think they're going to let themselves off the hook either. They, they're going to yeah. recognize that this is our fault, yeah. but it is the Lord's doing to them. Yeah. As, yeah. as the text continues into verses three and following, we come into that language, and you brought it up already, that the Lord has become like an enemy. And, yeah. and we see him now a little bit more, I think, like a, a warrior seems to be kind of the, the driving image. And we, we know that, that the Lord is a, a man of war from, say, Exodus 15. He's the Yahweh's Tabaoth. He's the, the Lord of armies, Lord of hosts. But here he's turned his power not against the enemies of Israel, but against his own people, his, his daughter, as you were saying. So, yeah, um, if you look, let's just look a little more carefully at verse 4. Four and just see how it how it goes. So I kind of write read it in Hebrew word order so you can kind of get a sense of it. So he stepped on his bow like an enemy. All right. He set his right hand like an enemy. So it repeats it twice. Um, and notice that even in that detail, you're you uh, have to slow down and get the image in your mind. Um, then it says, and he killed all the delightful things or ones of the eye. So all the attractive things of beautiful Zion, of fair Zion, of daughter Zion, he killed. Um, and then uh, it, it uses this image, and I think this is important because we see this here and in the following verses. Notice that he says, um, in the tent of daughter Zion. So notice that he's, I think that he's focusing here on specifically the temple and the destruction of the temple. Um, and, and I think other verses kind of make that a little clearer. Verse 7, for example, when he talks about the altar specifically. But he calls, he calls the temple tent. And I think, again, that happens in Psalms several times as well. When you do that, notice that it harkens back to uh, Israel in the wilderness when they actually, when the tabernacle uh, was there and God dwelt with his people there. And uh, especially in the theme of Jeremiah, there's this theme of, you know, there were times in Israel's life and history when they were faithful. And it kind of harkens back perhaps to that. But also the use of tent reminds people that the temple is in itself a, uh, it's not eternal. It is transient. Um, it is temporary. And remember, part of the issue was as long as we have the temple here, you know, the Lord's not going to forsake his temple. They put his trust, their trust kind of in the wrong thing there. And so by calling it a tent, 
it's just this brutal reminder of the temporariness of that structure. Um, and just the word order. So in the tent of daughter Zion, um, he poured out like fire his wrath. And again, uh, if you follow along in the Hebrew text, there's like five different words for wrath. I don't know. We don't even have as many English synonyms enough to to uh, cover them. I don't know if we do or not. So um, uh, that's that's what's coming kind of clear. Uh, but that's it, it, like you said, Tim. It's such a vivid image of how God has turned against His people, and of course, the image reflects what God used to do for Israel's enemies is now mm-hmm. happening to them. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the 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 way the temple functions here and, and how it shows up because I, I I noticed it particularly in verses six and seven. You right. know, he is in the ESV. He is laid waste. His booth. There's a yeah. refer to his meeting place, his altar, his sanctuary. Right. Yeah. That involved in the destruction of Jerusalem was the destruction of the temple as well. Yeah. And it, I guess one thing as I was reflecting on that 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 strikes me. You know, Jerusalem is being destroyed because of the rebellious idolatry of the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And yet, as Jerusalem is destroyed, it is also the Lord's own dwelling place that gets destroyed as well. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not sure, and I'm not sure if I'm taking or thinking about this too much or, or taking it in a wrong direction, but it, it strikes me that as Jerusalem suffers, so the Lord ends up suffering with his people in that his own sanctuary is, you know, desecrated and destroyed. And I, I don't know if I'm reaching for something that's not there or not, or it, that's not there. I, I'm, I don't want to go there if it's not there, but it, it does. I find that, I, mm-hmm. I guess, noteworthy that, that yeah. the Lord ends up suffering along with his people in the destruction of Jerusalem. Am I, am I taking that too far? Uh, it is interesting to think about um, because part of the, theme that you get in the prophets is how long this wasn't coming, how slow to anger God was with his people and how he did not want this to happen. And so he sent prophet after prophet preaching repentance and they refused to listen to him. And I do think you're on to something when you see that repetition of that third person pronoun, him, his, 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 um, it sticks out to you. Um, and I think if you think about it in the, I'm just reflecting on it while you were talking, uh, remember that nations would see their victories as victory because of their God and defeat as the defeat of their God. So that very often this happened for Israel, right? When Jerusalem was conquered, what you put the foreign gods in the sanctuary, you put your God in the sanctuary, right? Um, and so the thought of God destroying his own dwelling place, uh, becomes almost unthinkable. Um, and, uh, and yet that's, that's what happened finally. Um, he destroyed. So again, notice the detail. He destroyed his tent. He destroyed his appointed place, right? He made uh, forget in Zion festival and Sabbath. So he wiped out um, the place where he had promised to dwell with his people. He wiped out 
the festivals and the Sabbath, remember those were specifically gospel-oriented things where they were people were reminded of God's grace and favor for them. Uh, then it says he despised, and here comes another um, synonym for anger, uh, in his overwhelming wrath, king and priest. Um, so in Zion, remember, the king dwelled in Jerusalem and the priest, and he wiped it all out. So in those three lines, you see the kind of total breaking of the relationship that he had. And again, you can see this reversal. He's treating, this is a God who's treating his own people, this almighty God, like uh, an enemy uh, or like the enemies would treat Israel. Because this is just what enemies would do, right? They'd come in and destroy everything. And that's what's happening. And and so, again, that's the theological significance uh, of um, the fall of Jerusalem, specifically the temple. This is where God dwelled with his people. This is where they knew they had a God of grace. This is where they could find a word from God reminding them that they were his people. And now God had fallen silent in this horrifying way. Mm. Yeah, I mean, again, that really gives you a feel for just how much of a tragedy, a catastrophe this is for the people of Judah. You know, the the place where they would look that this is how we know God is with us, that place has been destroyed. What now? I mean, really becomes a, a really important theological question for the people. And I do think, and again, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but that's where chapter five being a prayer and, yeah. and even in you know five nineteen, will the people will pray, "You, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations." I mean, I I think that's where the Book of Lamentations is going to to take us there, and it's going to take us there through that never ending mercy, the faithfulness of God. They're not there yet in, in chapter two, and they're right. going through that that grief, that mourning, that lamentation over that. Let's let's go to verses nine and ten before we spend some time maybe reflecting on this as a whole. Because in nine and ten, it's not so much what the Lord is doing, but it goes back to now how the the city is experiencing this and the the people are experiencing this, and particularly at the end of verse nine, there's that that phrase that seems important: the law is no more and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. Uh, comments on, on verses 9 and 10, Dr. Sloska. All right. So uh, now you're getting kind of this description in, in a more literal sense of the um, destruction of the city. So um, the walls sank to the ground. He destroyed and broke her bars. And now it goes to um, her king and her leaders, um, are among the nations without Torah, without Torah. I think there's a theme in Lamentations, right? Uh, not only the destruction of Jerusalem and specifically the temple, but also it's the failure of the leaders, the king and the priests and even the prophets. Um, you see that reflected. They led the people astray. They worshiped false gods and that kind of thing. So even in verse 9 it says, even her prophets, they did not find a vision from the Lord. So think about this theologically. Um, and it's, it's very important. This is a really important point, all right, um, that since Moses, God's people always got the prophet. They always had, so to speak, the preacher. Um, you see that. Uh, remember, Moses was called a prophet, and he said in Deuteronomy 18, uh, the Lord promised, uh, I will send you a prophet from amongst you. To him you shall hearken. And we saw that 
manifested over and over again in Israel's history, especially beginning with Samuel, the role of the prophet really increased. That was not like what happened to Babylon, not like what happened to Egypt or the other nations. They died without a word from God. The prophets always brought the promise of forgiveness and hope. And so when you, when you read First and Second Samuel, for example, you can see what makes Saul so tragic is that God stops talking to him. Um, and remember, he's finally driven to the Witch of Endor just to f- find out and, and the devastation that it wrought him. After, remember after David sinned with Bathsheba and he was silent and you get this sense of silence, what did God do? He sent a prophet, Nathan, to remind him of his sin and then assure him of forgiveness. Um, and so in these two lines, he's, you see that, that God is, the, the terrible judgment is that they're not going to get any word from God. God's going to fall silent. And um, now what do the people do, you see? Um, and uh, again, we have to take some time to kind of contemplate what that means. See, again, I have to follow this up right away because in our world where God seems so silent, remember, that's why we call Jesus the Word made flesh and why the, that verse in Hebrews means so much to me that in past times God spoke to his people through the prophets, but now in these last times he spoke to us through his Son. So the Word that we have from God amidst the apparent silence of God is the Word of Jesus himself, and what does he promise us in the Word made flesh? That he's going to raise his people from the dead. And that's the promise by which we live and by which we hope. So we do not have a God that remains silent. We have a God who has talked to us in this most intimate of way. And I think that's so important as we're contemplating a verse like this in Lamentations to keep in mind. And even in spite of the fall of Jerusalem, God kept his promise to his people in a wonderful way that, no one could have kind of imagined the, the scope and depth of what God planned to do for his people, for us. Mm-hmm. Dr. Seleska, we've got about five minutes here on the morning, and, and I think the, the comments that you made there at the end are, are going to be a helpful way for us to reflect on this text as a whole and, and ultimately you know, use it in a way that points us toward our Savior, Jesus Christ, as I mean, the theological interpretation and reflection that we're seeing here from Jeremiah concerning the fall of Jerusalem, that the Lord has poured out his anger on his people. He's become like an enemy to them. Speaking of ways and speaking of God in ways that sometimes seem very strange and maybe even offensive to our pious sensibilities, Jeremiah does freely. And yet for us as Christians, we've we've got that full picture, as you said, that that God is not silent, but he has spoken to us through his son, the word made flesh. So so with I mean, how how do we take a text like this and make use of it as Christians in our own theological interpretations of our lives and reflections on our lives? How do we use it in, in a helpful way that that's going to ultimately point us to that word made flesh, Jesus Christ? So. Um, it's just important to keep in mind that, um, and two texts will help here, I think, uh, Psalm 90, and then um, I'm going to point you just to Romans. Um, uh, let me, I'm going to get here, since you asked this question, I'm kind of doing this on the fly. But I want to 
just remind you of um, what he says in um, Romans 1, verse 18. Okay? Paul says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And when you go to um, Psalm 90, Moses says much the same thing. And I can't read, I don't want to read the whole text because we don't have time. But just to remind people that he gives you this meditation on what it means to live under God's wrath. And what it means is that we're brought to an end by his anger. Notice what Moses says. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass under your wrath. Um, the years of our life are 70, if we're lucky, 80, then they fly away. Who considers the power of your anger? Boy, that's a good question. No one considers the power of his anger. But we see it in um, this kind of incomprehensible suffering and things that come our way in this world. And then you have to, you're faced with this question, what do we do with a God like this? What kind of God is this? And this is where Luther makes that move um, from God to God, to the God who has revealed his true heart to us in the manger, and to the God who has revealed his love to us in the death and resurrection of his son, where we realize the ungraspable, incomprehensible truth that he poured out his wrath on his own son um, so that we could be declared righteous apart from the law. And that was, so that's the move that we make as Christians in this world when, when the things of this world begin to terrify us and uh, we wonder what God is about. Is God for us or against us? Well, he tells us, every time he tells us that our sins are forgiven in Jesus, that he's for us. Um, is he going to save us? He promises that he's going to save us in his son, even though all there, there are no visible markers to the truth of that. See, that's what it means to live a life of faith, not sight. And it's a radical, even scandalous way to live, and we tend to not appreciate, <laughs> appreciate that move from God to God or this God who is actually in control of everything. We're not looking at a world as Christians in which God isn't in control or God is weak or God doesn't care. No. Um, we live under his wrath. Will God satisfy us in the morning with his chesed as Moses pleads? And his chesed was shown us his grace, his mercy, most marvelously in his son. And that's what we trust and hope. That's where we're putting all our cards, right? Um, we're trusting that God's going to, is strong enough to do what he says, and he's going to do it. And, and he will, and he will, no doubt. The Reverend Dr. Tim Seleska is professor of exegetical theology and the Dean of Ministerial Formation at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri, helping us today with Lamentations 2, verses 1 to 10. Dr. Seleska, thanks so much for being our guest today. You're welcome, Tim. It's always a pleasure to hear from you, and blessings on the rest of your week, man. Thank you. You too. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the Book of Lamentations or comments on the series, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. <laughs>